This episode is sponsored by Fracht. Fracht means freight in German. Founded in 1955 in Basel, Switzerland as a freight forwarder, the company has grown and evolved to become a global logistics provider for many industries. Specifically for oil and gas, the company manages the complex movement of large industrial equipment used in our offshore production platforms, all the way to MRO, rope soap and dope, and chemicals. For more information, find them at www.frochtgroup.com. Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia. This is Delfina Govia, the Chief Sustainability Officer for Fracht, a global logistics provider with an unflinching commitment to sustainability and ESG and where we are collaborating with our customers and our suppliers to deliver innovative, sustainable supply chain solutions. ESG Energize listeners, we have been talking continuously about the need to advance our studies, especially at the university level, Uh, and the topics of ESG and sustainability. And so, by popular demand, I have invited Professor Hugh Daigle from the University of Texas at Austin, from the Hildebrand Department of Petroleum and Geosystems Engineering, to join the show today to talk about what he is doing for our youth on this topic. Professor Daigle, welcome. Thanks, Delfina. It's good to be here. So Professor Daigle happens to be a highly regarded and very respected professor within this very prestigious department program of petroleum engineering, which is number one in the nation, arguably the world. And it's been for at least 10 years running. Is that correct, Professor Daigle? That's right. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny. So I started here in 2013, uh, January, and U.S. News and World Report, which is the publication that you know publishes all the rankings of, of academic programs, um, they had stopped ranking petroleum engineering, and so we had this really funny slogan that said, you know, UTPGE always number one because in the last ranking they did, we had been number one. So the idea was, well, we're <laughs> going to be we're going to be stuck at that forever. So we're always number one. But then, actually, a few years ago, they started ranking petroleum engineering again, um, but you know what, we've been number one in every single, <laughs> every single one since then. So uh, I guess we're still number one. But uh, yeah, we work hard and it's, it's, a, it's a source of pride for us. Um, we have a fantastic you know, program. Yeah, that's right. Great students, great faculty. It's a, it's a fun place to work. Wonderful. And I, I would also make mention of the fact, since we're talking about ESG, and one of the topics within ESG is diversity and inclusion, that the petroleum engineering program absolutely embraces the women and the female uh, component of the, of the class. So that's a, a shout out to the university for their, for their efforts in diversity and, inclu- and inclusion as well. So Professor Daigle, start us off with a little bit about you, your background, your history, and what are the research topics that you normally uh, focus on? Sure. 
So I'm not what I would consider to be a traditional petroleum engineer, you know, in the sense that there is such a such a uh, such a person. But um, I'm a geologist. Um, both my bachelor's degree and my PhD are in earth science, and so I'm I'm interested in rocks. But rocks are really important because when you're thinking about you know fossil fuels, that's where the hydrocarbons come from. They're in rocks, um, and we have to understand how. The fluids move through rocks when we're producing from them. Uh, what happens when we drill through them? The rocks are really, really important. And so um, I'm com- I come at it from that perspective. Um, my research interests have traditionally been a lot to do with what happens in the subsurface right below the ocean floor. So looking at those really soft, muddy sediments that are right there on the bottom of the ocean, um, one interesting thing that happens there is uh, that we have these this substance called gas hydrates, which are basically ice with um, guest molecules, usually hydrocarbons, um, inside them. And there's been a lot of interest recently in actually trying to exploit these as an energy resource because methane hydrate is the most commonly occurring one, um, and it's a you know potential uh, potential energy resource. Um, So I've been interested in them both in terms of an energy resource, but also in terms of the global carbon cycle because they contain methane. Um, If the temperature and pressure conditions where they're stable get destabilized, which, you know, we could be seeing more of uh, due to climate change, then you've got methane that comes out, um, which is obviously a potent greenhouse gas, but it also has implications for the carbon cycle in the ocean. So um, that's historically what I've worked on. Now, since I got here, the nice thing about the University of Texas is it is a big place, and there's a lot of really interesting people doing a lot of really interesting work, and I've really had the opportunity to get pulled in many directions to do some really other interesting, fun things. So another big area of research that I have right now is using nanotechnology um, to Ooh. help um, mitigate some of the environmental issues associated with uh, oil and gas production. So we're looking at everything from using nanoparticles to make very stable uh, CO2 foams, which could be used for enhanced oil recovery, but also could be used for long-term carbon storage. Um, and you know, you could increase rates of mineralization possibly with these things. So that's one interesting thing. Um, and then the other thing we're looking at, at doing is using nanoparticles for uh, contaminated water cleanup. So um, oil and gas produces a lot of water along with it, and that water usually it's mixed with oil usually, and it has all yeah. kinds of heavy minerals and radioactive material and stuff. And um, we've done a lot of work looking at using nanoparticles actually to help clean that up. So there's a lot of potential there. Um, wow! And then, yeah, it's it's pretty cool stuff. Um, and then the the last area that we're really getting into now is uh, sustainable energy. And my little corner of that that I'm really interested in right now is hydrogen, um, both in terms of, um, you know, where is the best place to make it? When is the best place to make it? And then how do you store it? There's, you know, if you're making hydrogen at a time when you've got excess energy to do so, you need to store it until you actually need it. It's kind of like a giant battery. And to get right. the amount of storage that's necessary um, to really make this a viable uh, source of energy storage, you need to store it underground. So there's a lot of issues associated with that. Um, we already know a little bit about gas storage from, or I shouldn't say a little bit. We know a lot about gas storage <laughs> from work that people have done on carbon storage. Um, but hydrogen is a little bit of a different beast. 
and the timescales you're looking at it are different. So there's a lot of you know a lot of really rich uh, research topics there um, that still need to be figured out, both from a scientific and um, an engineering standpoint. So how do you how do you actually are we looking at doing the underground storage? Because with natural gas, we use old salt mines, right? And right. what is what is the mechanism, the the structure for underground storage for hydrogen? Yeah. So actually, the easiest way to do it is also using salt caverns. Um, you okay. Know, salt, salt caverns are a great place to store things um, because they're not leaky. Um, salt is a has an extremely low permeability so that's the ease with which fluids can move through it so um, at least for you know time scales of like years or, or even decades uh, you can store you know gas oil you know basically that's what you're storing down there um, you can store them in salt caverns and they generally will have extremely low rates of leakage um, we, you know most most of the you know most people probably realize that the uh, strategic petroleum reserve is also a bunch of salt caverns that have been filled with oil. So they're really good for storing um, gases, oil, uh, that sort of thing. But there are other possibilities, and this is where stuff starts to get interesting. Um, so we know that you can store carbon dioxide, CO2 storage, in what we call saline aquifers. And so these are formations deep under the ground that have nothing in them but salt water. And so you can inject the CO2 in there and ideally it'll get trapped somehow um, either, you know, by gravity or it'll turn into a mineral and get trapped for a very long time. Um, that, that process is fairly well understood. Um, it's possible that we could store hydrogen in saline aquifers as well. Um, but there's a number of issues associated with that, most notably the fact that hydrogen, unlike CO2, is highly reactive. So it right. reacts readily with a lot of the minerals and stuff that are that are in the subsurface. And the other big deal is that microbes love hydrogen. They, you know, will eat it, you know, just, you know, there's all kinds of you know, hydrogen loving microbe species in, in the subsurface. And so what happens is they can eat your they can eat your hydrogen and turn it into methane. They can turn it into hydrogen sulfide. They can turn it into acetate which is all, you know, those are all interesting things. But at the end of the day, if you're storing your hydrogen underground, you want to get it back out eventually. You don't want a, micro, <laughs> you don't want a bug to turn it into methane. That totally defeats the purpose. So, um, you know, understanding that those reactions and, you know, how to figure out which bugs are down there and who's, who's going to be doing what is, um, is a big challenge. So that's, you know, very kind of frontier research right now is, hydrogen storage and saline aquifers. The other thing that's even more interesting is storing hydrogen in depleted oil and gas reservoirs. Um, so that has a big advantage because if you worry about the hydrogen leaking when you pump it down into the subsurface, if it's been an oil and gas reservoir, it's already capable of trapping oil and gas. And right. so, you know, you've probably got a, you'll probably have a decent seal if you put the, put the hydrogen down there. The problem then is that when you want to make use of your hydrogen again, you're going to pump it out of the ground and it's going to be mixed with either gas or oil or whatever was down there. Um, if you're storing this in a gas reservoir, actually the buoyancy probably will help you out because the hydrogen is less dense than natural gas. So it'll naturally stratify. You know, right. maybe. Um, again, this is you know some uh, kind of fundamental 
you know, research that, that needs to be done on this. But that's another, that's another possibility. Um, so there's a lot of different ways we can start underground, going from things that we understand pretty well to things that we barely understand at all and everything in between. <laughs> really exciting area to be looking at. Well, if we understood everything, we, you wouldn't have a job. I know that's, you know, that's a, <laughs> that's a variation on what I always like to tell people that if it was easy, someone would have done it already. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, well, so the reason why I had originally reached out to you was I had heard from one of your students that you had started a new class for the petroleum engineers called sustainability issues in energy. Mm-hmm. Am I, did I get that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So tell me about that class. What prompted you to develop that course and how, how is this becoming more relevant to our young petroleum engineers? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So this goes back several years now um, to part of a broader discussion that we've had about how do we introduce sustainability concepts to our students? Um, and at the same time, how do we broaden their outlook of energy in such a way that, um, you know, somewhere down the line, if, you know, as the energy transition continues and we start to see a more diverse range of energy sources, that our students will have the, you know, fundamentals to be able to go work, not just for in oil and gas, but in, you know, geothermal, carbon storage, um, you know, hydrogen, you know, whatever, whatever comes along the way that still uses these engineering concepts. Um, and so as Part of that effort, we came up with this um, undergraduate minor in sustainable energy, and we just started that um, this past fall in, in 2022. We had our first cohort of students. Um, and so the students, it's an 18 credit hour minor, um, and they have to take three required classes. Um, one of them is a class on global climate change. Uh, one of them is this class called Energy Technology and Policy, which looks at uh, kind of the policy aspects of um, sustainable energy. And then the third one is this new class that I put together from scratch called Sustainability Issues in Energy. And the goal of this class is to introduce the students to different um, aspects of the sustainable energy transition and this idea of net zero carbon emissions. So um, what are we going to have to do to provide the world with the energy that it needs without compromising the ability of future generations to enjoy, you know, the planet the way that that we have? So that's um, that, that's kind of a, a long paraphrase of you know one of the best uh, definitions of sustainability that that I've come across that it you know it meets, meets the needs of the present without compromising the needs of the future. Um, and so when we think about that in this class, we cover basic topics about energy and sustainability. Um, and then we cover carbon capture, utilization and storage. We cover geothermal energy. We cover hydrogen. We cover methane emissions from the natural gas supply chain. Um, uh, one glaring emission that I had this year that I'm going to add next year is a unit on nuclear power because that's a, oh. um, that's a very you know good, clean uh, zero carbon uh, energy source as well. Um, and so, you know, we, we I, I work with the students to get them to understand not just what these technologies are, but what are the challenges 
that need to be overcome. So a really good example of this is when we talk about um, hydrogen, for instance. Okay, so if you're making hydrogen from electrolysis, you need water, okay? Yeah. Where's that water going to come from? Um, let's imagine you're out in West Texas, and mm -hmm. you've got all this methane that, you know, a lot of it is being flared because it just doesn't make sense to try to sell it because it's worth, you know, sometimes it's worth negative money out there. Um, right. And so what if you want to turn that into hydrogen? Well, okay, if you want to use electrolysis, you're going to need water. There's not a lot of water in West Texas. And yeah. what water there is, people already have need for. So you're taking water away. Um, that's one issue. Um, another one is if you're running an electrolyzer, uh, you need electricity. And where are you going to take that electricity from? Sometimes there's excess energy from wind production out there. Maybe you can use it. Maybe you can use it then. But at the end of the day, you're also taking energy away that someone might need at that particular moment. Um, and so those are some of the issues that we think about. Another one is, again, you know, I know I'm kind of hammering on electrolyzers here, but, um, you know, the catalysts that are that are needed um, for that process, those have, um, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, critical, critical minerals in them, um, some of which, um, like cobalt is one uh, that's used more in, in batteries. But, um, you know, platinum is another one that they come from, you know, parts of the world where, you know, we might be dealing with countries whose, you know, interests aren't necessarily aligned with ours or where there are some, you know, questionable humanitarian conditions under which some of these materials are mined. Um, so, you know, there's a lot that gets wrapped up in this. And the way I like to think of it, it's not a doom and gloom type thing, you know, that says we just throw up our hands and say, we can't do this, it's too hard. Um, it's to teach the students about every one of these issues is an area that some smart person needs to take a look at and try to come up with a solution. Um, I'm of the mindset that anyone, not, what, let me say that again. I'm of the mindset that <laughs> none of these challenges is insurmountable. Um, we need to be educating our students here, particularly the engineers, because they're the problem solvers and they're the ones who are gonna look at this, look at these problems and come up with the workarounds and solutions to, uh, to try to solve some of these issues. What I would argue, Professor Daigle, is that there is there is no other industry, no other industry that has tackled such monumentally difficult engineering feats that require the integration of multiple engineering disciplines along with economics business business topics than the oil and gas industry to be able to take a drop of oil out of the ground, especially when we're talking about in the middle of the ocean, you know, football fields long, deep into the ocean and then miles beneath the surface. There is no other industry that, that can do that. And people get tired of hearing me say what we do every day in our industry is more difficult than putting a man on the moon. So students that I would argue that students that go into petroleum engineering are already of that mindset and that ilk where they want to tackle the world's most difficult problems. And th this, this, what you're talking about should be 
music to their ears. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, getting to, you know, sustainable energy, net zero is a tremendous challenge. I think it's one of the biggest challenges um, facing the planet right now. Um, and you, you're absolutely right. So I, I worked in industry for a while. Um, I ran wireline logs. I worked as a log analyst. Um, and, you know, people would always complain that, oh, all the easy oil has already been found, um, which is, you know, kind of a silly complaint. But there is a hint of truth to that in that we are always doing things in the oil and gas industry at the very bleeding edge of what's possible. Absolutely. So you look back to, you know, early in the 20th century, you know, the discovery of, you know, Spindletop near near Beaumont, you know, to, to us now, it looks trivial. I mean, it was, it's a salt dome and there was an oil accumulation next to it. Like, that was like the easiest geological and engineering problem you, you could have come up with. But for them, it was a tremendous challenge even to get those wells drilled and bring them under control and bring them to, to production. Um, and so you fast forward 120 years later, here we are, and you're absolutely right. Some of the stuff that, you know, when you look at ultra deep water drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, you're drilling these, you know, 30,000 foot long wells that, you know, have complicated trajectories, complicated um, you know, downhole equipment, complicated completions. They're in high pressure, high temperature formations. Um, it's not easy. And it really yeah. does take a, a large range of disciplines. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm a geologist, but when you look at the makeup of the other faculty faculty in my department, most of us are not petroleum engineers. We don't have degrees in petroleum engineering. We've got a lot of chemical engineers. We have um, you know, several geologists. We have a mathematician. Um, so it really takes all kinds of different backgrounds uh, yeah. to come together to solve these problems because they're big. They're huge. So what about the aspect of um, bringing this back to this to the mindset of the students coming in? So we we just tackled that from a a challenge perspective, the type of of uh, energy and enthusiasm that young folks have for solving really difficult problems. What about the mindset of these same students that are coming in with an attitude towards global sustainability? Do you yeah. see that that's, that's on the rise? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I enjoyed about teaching this class is that we had a mixture of students from all the different engineering programs we have here. So we had, you know, many petroleum engineers, obviously, but, you know, we had architectural engineers and environmental engineers and chemical engineers. And so, you know, it was a really broad range and it was really interesting to see the different perspectives of the students. So, you know, the, you know, people in environmental engineering, they are interested in, you know, net zero. They, you know, want to reduce carbon emissions um, because, you know, this is a big, it's a big environmental challenge. Um, you know, the petroleum engineers, um, you know, they're also interested in that, but they're also interested in developing a broad skill set that they can take to the oil and gas industry and say, hey, I know these are problems that I know something about how to solve now. Um, so, you know, they come with a variety of different perspectives, but I think at the end of the day, there's a common theme that they want to learn how to make energy production less carbon intensive, and they want to position themselves for the energy economy of the future, um, which, you know, when I look at what our students are going to do now, it looks nothing like what I did when I entered the industry in 2004. And 20 years from now, it's going to be very different from what it is now. 
Um, you know, we've seen, you know, this is a little bit aside, but we've definitely seen a lot of interest in our students in, in learning data science and machine learning. And that's really taken off as a valuable skill set in the industry. Um, and I think, you know, similar to that is learning about, you know, the broader context of sustainable energy, that um, this is going to be a line on their resume, we hope, that will, you know, give them a leg up and, you know, really position them to be the energy leaders that we're going to need in the next 20 to 30 years to make this all work out. Very well said. Um, a lot of my colleagues in the in the industry are leaders because I'm old. So <laughs> those those are those are my uh, my cohorts, and absolutely, they cannot continue to lead the way our my grandfather uh, led when you know he was one of the senior folks at Exxon. It's mm. it's a completely different world and it's requiring different skills, a different attitude, a different perspective on how we in the industry are going to to continue to be sustainable as an industry as well as contribute to the sustainability as the pla- of of the planet. That's right. Do you what do you see as our our future in academia? Do you see broadening of curricula across across schools so for example cockrell collaborating with macombs in in programs in classes do you see anything like that or is there something different that you see for academia moving forward well so definitely here at ut there is a um you know they are interested and they always have been interested in these uh interdisciplinary programs um but I, I think, yeah, for sure, with um, in, in the context of sustainable energy, um, there is a sense that it can't just be engineering doing it, and it can't just be geosciences doing it, that there's aspects of this that, uh, that all need to come together. Um, and so, you know, the way we put together this minor, it's open to, you know, not all of the engineering programs, most of the engineering programs, as well as geoscience and chemistry. So we've involved... You know, the Jackson School of Geosciences and also the College of Natural Sciences in that. Um, we had some discussions about whether we wanted to open this up also to the business school or to the law school or things like that. And I think at the time we decided, you know, no, that's just getting too, that's getting too big. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely something that we need to look at, but at least in terms of an academic program that starts to get pretty challenging uh, to try to manage that. Um, but I think you're going to be seeing more of these, maybe not necessarily minors, but definitely certificate programs um, that come along the way that are reaching across these, you know, the academic units here um, to look at the broader at the broader context. Um, you know, because with sustainable energy, a big part of it right now is the cost. Um, right. You know, the cost of batteries and and energy storage is is high. It's still it's coming down, but. You know, there's there's definitely a significant economic component to this, um, and then there's uh, you know also just understanding, you know, life cycle assessments um, and, and that sort of thing for different you know sustainable energy technologies. That requires you know a particular set of knowledge that you know some of it resides here in the you know Cockrell School of Engineering, but you know you have to look at um, you know the business school or even the 
you know, LBJ school to think about policy. So that's that's a very long way of, of saying, um, yeah, we're we're aware of that, and there are definitely rumblings. And I think that you know, in the future, there's going to be more programs like that that, that you'll be seeing. And what we're going to need is some uh, wealthy donors to endow chairs and support these these sorts of efforts, correct? Well, that never hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so I also, let's, let's get this uh, wrapped up because I know you've got students waiting on you, Professor Daigle. I understand that you also have a, a policy, a process, a habit of, of taping your lectures. Is is that something that you make available to not just other students, but people in general to to have access to that? Because quite frankly, I would like to listen I'd, into some lectures that you may have yeah. had. Yeah, for sure. So um, I have been slowly but steadily recording all the material for my uh, sustainability issues and energy class and putting them on my YouTube channel. Um, oh, so, a YouTube channel. A YouTube channel. That's right. Um, okay. You can go check it out. It's just my name. It's, you know, that's one of the nice things about being named Hugh Daigle is that I'm the only one out there. So it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> okay. It's easy for me to claim things with my name on it. Um, but yeah, you can go on YouTube and find me. I would say I'm about 60% of the way through the material. It's um, taken me a lot longer than I anticipated when I originally started this project. Um, but I've got everything through the end of my geothermal lecture right now, and I should be putting up some material on hydrogen in the near future. Um, so, yeah, it just... Um, would Would you mind if we put a link to that in the show notes? No, please, please do. I hope people can go and, and find them useful. I also made a note here of the minor in sustainable energy. Is there a way for people to look into that program? Is there a link to that that we could also put in the show notes? Yes, we have a link on the uh, PGE department website that um, okay. we can distribute to people. Um, if there are any engineering students out there listening who are interested in the minor, um, we have two deadlines during the year. One is March 1st, so that's coming up or it may already have passed. And then the other one is October 1st to apply for the program. So um, put those on your calendar if you're interested and um, reach out to me if, uh, if anybody needs more information. So technical question for the for high school students looking for their their academic uh, career ahead of them is is this minor in sustainable energy something that they need to be thinking about applying as part of their entrance to the University of Texas or is that something that they apply for once they've already been accepted at at Cockrell? Yeah, so this is something you'd apply for at probably somewhere around after the end of your sophomore year. We have a number. Ah, of, okay. Uh, we have a number of prerequisites that have to be met first. Um, so you know, right around the end of sophomore, beginning of junior year, that seems to be a really good time uh, to to get into this. Fantastic, Professor Daigle. What a pleasure! And I'm probably going to ask you to come back on this show at some time in the future. This is absolutely fascinating. We only touched on a, a sliver a sliver of the things that you are working on. So hopefully oh, yeah. you will come back and join us in the future. I would be happy to. This was so much fun. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. 